Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going into a standard we haven't talked about before, IS 37 provisions. It's been around for years, but we have not talked about it in all 56 episodes or however many we've done. And I've got a new face in the studio. Welcome, Andrea Loco, UK partner. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Are you excited about your debut? I'm very excited about my debut, Ruth. <laughs> she looks excited. So, we'll crack on. We don't have much small talk. It's all about provisions, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, we'll go straight in. Um, what is actually in the scope of IS-37? How do we get in there? Yeah. So, actually, IS-37 is sort of what we say is at the bottom of the scope waterfall for, for liabilities. <laughs> so, it sort of means it scopes lots of things out. Um, it scopes out anything, liabilities that are covered by other standards. So... Um, liabilities like lease liabilities, financial liabilities, insurance contract liabilities, um, share-based payment liabilities, pensions, all that type of stuff is covered by other standards. But if it's not covered by other standards, it generally falls into the scope of IS-37. There is a definition in IS-37 of what a provision is, and it's a liability that has uncertainty associated with either timing or amount. Okay, perfect. So really, you go to everywhere else first. Yep. And then I, I like how you describe it as the bottom of the waterfall. I feel like it's the dustbin. Like yeah, it's the dustbin. <laughs> Everything goes in there. It just scoops Everything up all the rubbish at the end. Yeah. Don't know where to put liability. I'll put it in IS-37. You've got to go to IS-37, <laughs> look at IS-37, see what it says. <laughs> and so what are some examples of what ends up there? Um, so I think the most common examples of IS-37 liabilities are things like owner's contracts, restructuring provisions, legal provisions, that type of stuff is going to fall into the scope of 37. Perfect. And you mentioned a little bit about the definition there, but what is the criteria to actually recognize a provision in the standard? So there's three criteria to recognize a provision. The first is that you have a present obligation arising from a past event. Um, the second is that you have a probable outflow of resources. And the third is that you can make a reliable estimate. So if you apply that to something simple like an owner's contract, you have a present obligation from a past event if you've you know signed a contract in a sense. Um, your outflow of resources might be the cost the entity might incur to fulfill that contract. And a reliable estimate is how do you estimate that, that those costs. So that's sort of how you apply um, the criteria. It does have a probable criteria, so things that fall below the probable criteria, if there's not a probable outflow of resources, then, then you do not recognize a provision. And then the standard talks around, I know we're not going to focus on it today, but about like what's contingent liability yeah. and then there'll be disclosure around that even if you're not recognizing yeah. something. Exactly. So if you're not recognizing something, there is some disclosure requirements around it. The other thing that sits in IS 37 actually is um, some information about actually when you can recognize things like contingent assets and that sets a much higher threshold for um, recognition of an asset and so that that needs to be virtually certain so it's a different virtually threshold. Certain. Virtually certain. So it's like high up in the percentage yeah, world. That means you basically have the cash in hand I would yeah. say is sort of the contingent asset. Um, the other thing I suppose around kind of the the recognition criteria is this idea about can you can you reliably measure something and as I said sort of the definition of a provision is that there's uncertainty in timing and amount so just because there's a bit of uncertainty doesn't mean that you can't reliably measure. So I would say that is generally a very high threshold. It is rare that we would say 
you do not recognize a provision just on the basis that you can't make a reliable measurement. Where you might see this type of thing is in some sort of um, kind of legal provision or product liability type stuff where it's just really difficult to understand kind of the outcome cause and there's lots of activity going on. That is an incredibly rare case as we might see somebody say, I can't recognize it because it's not, you know, reliably estimated. Okay. Perfect. Um, and so you, in your your day job as a technical guru, where do you get lots of common questions around IS-37? Yeah. I mean, the most common question we get around IS-37 is, can I or should I recognize an onerous contract provision? I mean, that is really... Um, the most common question. And actually, I probably spend most of my time telling people that they can't recognize provisions when they when they want to recognize provisions. So, and I, I think this comes from the fact that the it's it's very unusual to, you know, enter into an owner's contract, right? It doesn't make commercial sense to enter into yeah. an owner's contract. So quite often, entities will commercially enter into contracts that will give them a... Um, a loss um, yeah. because they want to enter into a new market or they're trying to um, build up capability in a particular project or product or something like that. So you do see um, companies a lot of times enter into loss contracts and they say, well, you know, can I can I book an owner's contract provision or should I book an owner's contract provision? And depending upon how a, a company or an entity is communicating um, that that contract and the results of that contract to their their investors, they might want to recognize an owner's contract. They might not want to. Um, but actually, you know, the the in the concept of evaluating owner's contracts, you have to consider the contract position, kind of the wider economic benefits you're getting from a contract. So, you know, even if your your outflow of resources is higher than the actual cash coming in from the contract. You do look at things like wider economic benefits, like getting into a new market, getting new customers when you're evaluating some whether something is onerous. Um, so actually that's, and it's a very tricky area um, and it can be quite judgmental to say, how do I measure those yeah. wider, wider economic benefits? So you sort of start with this premise that you can't enter into an onerous contract or you shouldn't enter these, aren't gonna enter into an onerous contract, but it just raises a number of questions about then when do you actually recognize an owner's contract? When does it happen? When does something become onerous? And yeah. it's normally when something turns bad. Yeah, something happens. Yeah, I was going to say, you. Uh, most of the time I imagine people would go into it thinking it's not onerous, but then something happens that ends up that it's an onerous contract. That's a really interesting concept. So it's not just, I imagine a lot of people go in and go, these are my cash outflows, these are my inflows, outflows are more, I've got an owner's contract, whereas actually it is a much broader, why commercially did you go into that in the first place? People need to think about. Exactly. And because you're looking at wider economic benefits, that's obviously not something from an accounting standpoint We is recognized anywhere on, okay. on nice the books of records. So, <laughs> so even if you enter into a contract, for instance, that has wider economic benefits, it's operating at a loss at the beginning, um, you know, and halfway through it goes bad and you go to measure it as being onerous. Well, well, how much of that is onerous? How much of that is just the initial loss associated with the wider economic benefits or versus additional loss that you've, you've incurred as you've um, been delivering on the contract? Yeah. And what about any issues where I've seen before is like around measurement, maybe discount rate, things yeah. like that? Yeah. So I think that's the other common thing that actually we see people get get wrong. Um, I think lots of standards. standards. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, and it is, um, 
you know, it's it is quite difficult, obviously, because you use a different discount rate in every set of standards. But in in provisions, you're using a, a primarily people use a risk free rate, um, and they are applying to that to risk adjusted cash flows. Um, so a risk-free rate is obviously generally much lower than a rate you would use, for instance, in, a, in an impairment review, right, which would be some sort of risk-adjusted rate. Um, and sort of the rationale behind that is that the, 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 the concept and the provision standards that it, is the entity itself is sort of is settling the liability. And so what they're trying to avoid doing is entities' own credit risk being kind of included into the measurement of the liability if they are settling credit their own credit risk isn't isn't included and you know the other thing that people get wrong is they tend to say well i'm not going to risk adjust my clash flows i'm going to risk adjust my rate but technically if you're risk adjusting a rate in the concept of a liability that rate's going to go down and not up so it's going to make your liability um Bigger. So this is an area that um, you know people need to be quite careful of, and it's something we've seen the um, seen the regulators pick up on as well. Okay. So risk-free rate always a tricky one of where to get that from. And then um, I like to go through everything. So we've talked about like recognition, measurement. There's always issues with disclosure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's those issues with disclosure. That's right. And I, I suppose the basic disclosure requirements around provisions is you need to sort of show a roll forward of provisions. And actually, what can be sensitive about the rule forward of provisions is you actually show what of those provisions have been utilized or versus release. And that's an es- trying to show that you made an estimate at the beginning what, what actually you utilizing versus actually just adjusting as adjusting an estimate. Um, the second thing that you really need to disclose is actually just some c- kind of information about sort of that uncertainty of the, the timing or the amount. And actually quite a number of people actually leave that out. If the the provision itself is a is a kind of key estimate, so a significant estimate in accordance with IS one, that's where you start to get in providing sensitivity disclosures. So that's additional disclosures on top of what the provision standard includes. I suppose the final thing that kind of gets really sensitive about um, IS thirty seven and the disclosure requirements is about the provisions that aren't recognized, which, which Ruth, you alluded to earlier. So this is when you have kind of contingent liabilities. And there are some disclosure requirements around that. And some of those disclosure requirements are um, quantitative. So despite not having recognized anything in the financial statements, you, you might need to disclose kind of a range, for example, for something that might happen, but it isn't probable yet. And that actually can be quite sensitive if you're talking about things like uh, legal settlements. And, and quite quite often, um, it's a difficult area um, to discuss. Yeah, and I've heard before people like push back saying, well, I don't want to make this disclosure because it's in a legal case and it's yeah. highly sensitive and it could swing the case. And yeah. there isn't that concept in IS 37 that goes, oh, well, if it's sensitive data, you don't have to write it down, which exactly. is always a challenging, like how much information can exactly. people want to put in one and to satisfy the disclosure requirements. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned with um, onerous contracts and discount rates, I think, that uh, the board is doing something about IS 37. What's going on? The board's yeah. looking at the old standards. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say that the ISB has been threatening to look at um, IS 37 for, for a number of years. Anyone actually. from the board that's listening, we, you know, <laughs> you're not really threatening. Um, but they did do a project kind of a number of years back just looking at sort of the measurement. And I think because 
there are some there's some difficulties around it. There's some inconsistencies around, you know, one how people apply the standards. There's questions around why is the discount rate different in the, the owner's contract standard versus the impairment standard, because those those standards have a tendency to interact quite often. So a number of questions and, and issues in practice that the ISB has sort of been been toying with looking at. Um, so they have kind of restarted a research project on this, and it, and it is a new research project. So they closed the old one. They're going to start a new one to go back and sort of look at these um, some of these issues. It's still supposed to be um, fairly limited in scope, so I don't think they're going down the path at this point in time of doing a wholesale rewrite of IS-37. Um, We're not going to have our press 18 no, provisions. No, well, not anytime soon, <laughs> not anytime soon. Um, the... The other thing they just actually finished was a research project on discount rates, which actually, you know, with the provisions was one of the, the topics. And it does sort of outline or acknowledge that different Issues, discount rates yeah. are used in different standards. And and again, the, the output of that wasn't that they were going to change the discount rate that's required in each one of these standards. It was just more of an acknowledgement and then for something that for them to be thinking about um, in the context of future standard setting. So that's sort of that's the broad stuff that the, the ISB has been kind of thinking about. And as I said, it's sort of been regenerated this year. Um, the one sort of a big thing that they've looked at in particular this year um, is something that's come out of the implementation of, of IFRS 15. And so prior to the application of IFRS 15, you used to have two types of contracts. You used to have kind of contracts for goods and services, and you used to have construction contracts. IS 11. IS 11. And IS 11 provided specific guidance on how you basically recognize loss contracts in, 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 in the scope of that standard. And it was, I call it kind of the fully loaded approach. As soon as you got to the point where your your contract was in a loss position. You recognize okay, oh. the entire the entire <laughs> loss at that point in time. Um, if you were some, looking at contracts that are under the scope of IS eighteen, so a normal goods and services contract, you go off to IS thirty seven, which has a different model in essence for measuring an owner's contract. It is a kind of a least cost of exit or least cost to fulfill model. So it's more of an incremental cost model. So historically, that's what um, you know entities have been doing. There's there's kind of mixed practice in how you define those, but generally they were two different models. When IFRS 15 came in, throws it out the yep, window, gone. <laughs> so IS 11 went out the door. Then you just have you know one standard IFRS 15, and every contract that is in the scope of IFRS 15 falls into IS 37 to analyze to determine whether it's an owner's contract. So the old fully loaded kind of IS-11 model seemed to, to disappear. Um, and actually it was one of these things that I would say was identified a little bit late in the game. So industries that had previously applied IS-11 IS hadn't quite caught on to the fact that this was going to be a change for them when IFRS 15 came in. So it's quite about a bit of pushback of, okay, well, now that I'm moving into this IS-37 model, which is this least cost of exit or cost to fulfill model, how do I define incremental costs? Do I include things like overheads? And so that's something that actually has been now through the Interpretations Committee and the board, and they've put out an exposure draft, which the comment period, I think, has ended, end, ended this year in May, to clarify actually how you might measure the cost side 
of the owner's contract. So it doesn't address the inflows and the wider economic benefits point, but it does address how you um, you you define the cost. And interestingly, it's it's getting a lot of it's getting a lot of debate because what it has said is. Well, we're not really going to just, we're going to define incremental costs slightly more widely. You can include things like overhead, which in essence, in substance, gives you a bigger provision and a provision probably closer to what you would have had under, under IS-11. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't really, uh, it hasn't sit well with everyone. There's mixed views on it. So we're expecting quite a few comment letters. So there were quite a few oh, comment letters. There in. were free, quite a few comment letters. And, um, <laughs> have you read were, every single one? No, I have not read every single one. I've read the board summary of the comment oh, letters, which good. is very good. Um, but really, sort of, you know, there's two schools of thoughts. One, one school of thought is, you know, this makes complete sense. This is how we've done it. You know, if you enter into a lost contract, you should take all the costs associated with that contract. And, and recognize it a provision. The, the owner's contract provision should capture all of that. The other school of thought is saying, well, actually, it really should just be incrementals because entities, as they're entering into new contracts and they're pricing new contracts, you know, economically, they're, they might only be trying to cover, for example, example their variable costs, yeah. not their you know, fixed costs, not everything, right? <laughs> yeah. So as as entities are pricing contracts, you could have an entity enter into a contract which they, you know, know if on a fully loaded basis as at, at a loss, but, you know, they their manufacturing facility isn't at full capacity or there might be other reasons why they're entering into it. And if you actually apply strictly what, um, you know, the boards have proposed, you might think, well, I, I'm almost getting into that position where I'm entering into a owner's contract from the beginning, which again, doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, I mean, how the boards are going to reconcile those two views is sort of, uh, it's unknown at this point in time, but it certainly came through in the board's initial conversations around the comment letters that have, that have come in. So it's exciting. We've got something to watch at the board now. Yes. And maybe when we get further on in the project, when we actually get a member, you could come back and tell us what actually happened oh, and give us the inside gossip. Looking forward to it, right? <laughs> looking forward to it. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time here. I feel like you could talk about provisions for days, Andrea. You love it. I didn't know I said 37 was your favourite standard. I press 15, surely. What's your favourite standard? Uh, right, it's got to be 15 just because I know that I can answer most questions about 15. <laughs> Still, I've not found someone other than me that likes IS41, but one day I'll find someone. Um, Okay, last question then, coming to the end. Is there anything companies should be thinking about now? So I think right now, I mean, one of the main things people should be worrying about with provisions, I mean, I would, you know, take a second look at the discount rate you're doing using because the regulators are starting to look at that. We're seeing some more questions around that. Um, So that's sort of old stuff. The other thing is just look at, you know, have a second look at your IFRS 15 um, contracts, you know, especially if you were applying IS 11 before. Think about the guidance that's out there under IS 37 and are you applying it correctly? Um, you know, the second bit, I guess, that's that's probably good news is those companies that are sitting on on onerous lease provisions, they don't need to worry about those anymore. So those are, those are going to, in essence, be subsumed into... Um, the application of IFR 16, oh, so you're not going to have owner's lease provisions on the books anymore. Um, so those things are go away. So those are kind of the things that people should be looking at going through their provisions and saying, okay, have I gotten rid of all my owner's lease provisions on transition to 16? Am I looking at my owner's contracts correctly given the change to 15? And am I using the right discount rate? 
Perfect. Thank you. So I can't believe, Andrew, this podcast has been going two years and we've not had you in the studio. So we definitely want you back. Um, but that was all about IS37. Um, if you uh, want any updates, then I'm sure we've got plenty of stuff on Inform and obviously keep a note about a board project that's going on specifically around onerous contracts. I think that's probably the most pressing thing that's changing. Um, just a little note from me. I don't know if Andrew knows, this is my last podcast for um, about six months. I'm going off to have my second baby, give you, you know, some the viewers some exciting <laughs> gossip about me they probably don't care about. Um, and the lovely Dave Waters, who has been here many times, is going to take over as host. So um, we are going to take a couple of weeks off over summer. So Dave will be back in September and he will do a marvellous job, I'm sure. You'll have loads of jokes. He loves deferred tax. Watch out. Um, but this I've been your host, Ruth Breedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.